Happy International Women's Day. Welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. All of our listeners will be hearing this a few days after, but we record on March 8th. So once again, happy International Women's Day to all. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we'll explore the factors behind the current food crisis with economics professor Robert Pollan. We'll talk about Governor Scott Walker's showdown with organized labor in Madison, Wisconsin, with Canadian Dimension labor columnist Harry Herman Rosenfeld. And we'll hear from Togestai, who is one of the spokesmen and the hereditary chief of the Fireweed Clan of the Wet'suwet'en Nation, on the plans to resist the Enbridge pipeline moving across northern British Columbia. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of March 10, 2011. Fighting has intensified in Libya as troops loyal to Muammar Gaddafi have launched a massive counteroffensive against a number of rebel-held towns. The BBC reports that Libyan government forces are advancing toward the oil port of Ras Lanouf, armed with tanks, artillery, military jets, and helicopters. The town of Bin Jawad, 30 miles from Ras Lanouf, has already fallen to forces loyal to Gaddafi. The United Nations estimates almost 200,000 people have now fled the violence in Libya. Earlier this week, the United Nations called for $160 million to cover the needs of those who have fled Libya, as well as others who remain trapped in the country. March 8th was the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day. The first International Women's Day was held in March 1911. International Women's Day was commemorated for the first time in Austria, Denmark, Germany, and Switzerland following its establishment during a socialist international meeting in 1910. Originally known as International Working Women's Day, the occasion celebrates women's rights around the world. Foreign Affairs Minister Lawrence Cannon said he would consider direct diplomatic contact with opposition forces in Libya. Canadian opposition politicians pushed the government Monday to make contact with the Libyan National Council, which has been the political voice of the rebel-held areas in the North African country. Cannon told reporters after speaking to the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee that there would be a great deal of validity in speaking with the rebels. Liberal foreign affairs critic Bob Ray said earlier Monday that the world needs to isolate Gaddafi so he's forced to step down. Ray said Canada should also expand asset freezes to squeeze the senior Libyan government and military officials keeping Gaddafi in power. The Canadian Immigration and Refugee Board has ruled that a Tamil migrant accused of terrorism links by the federal government isn't a threat to national security and can proceed with his refugee claim. The man, whose identity is under a publication ban, worked for a short time at a garage owned by the banned Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. He was one of nearly 500 migrants who arrived in BC aboard a ship from Sri Lanka last August. The Ministry of Public Safety accused him and 31 others in the group of terrorism, war crimes, or human smuggling. About 30 inadmissibility hearings are still expected amongst migrants who arrived on the MV Sunsea. According to an Immigration and Refugee Board spokeswoman, about 100 migrants still remain in custody. 
Correspondence from Immigration Minister Jason Kenney is detracting new accusations of partisanship. An email sent January 26th to at least one refugee rights organization directly attacks the policies of the Bloc Québécois. The email is signed by the Honourable Jason Kenney, Minister of Citizenship, Immigration and Multiculturalism. Kennedy said he didn't see any problem adding that the note criticizing the Bloc had been sent from a parliamentary email account. Kenny continued to defend himself this week as the opposition again called for his resignation following revelations that his office broke parliamentary rules. A Kenny staffer was fired last week for sending out a letter from the minister's office seeking donations to pay for a partisan ad campaign targeting ethnic communities. In news from Saudi Arabia, the country's Council of Senior Clerics has banned all public protests. The decision was announced following a demonstration Friday calling for an end of discrimination against the country's Shiite minority. Human rights groups say at least 26 Shiites have been arrested in recent days. The Center for Northern Families in Yellowknife has an uncertain future as the shelter faces a looming deficit of $172,000. The 16-bed center in downtown Yellowknife currently houses 23 people, many of whom are Aboriginal and Inuit women and families that need a safe place to stay. But the facility is stretched beyond its limits and struggling with a deficit that has built up year after year. Executive Director Arlene Hash says the Harper government could shut them down at any point, which would harm many impoverished people in the community. Protests are being organized across the United States to protect union rights and to oppose massive budget cuts. Trenton, New Jersey saw its largest protest ever on Saturday. Some 35,000 teachers, police officers, and state workers gathered in the Capitol on Saturday to oppose Governor Chris Christie's proposed $29.4 billion budget. In Nevada, more than 500 student protesters and supporters came together on the Las Vegas Strip Sunday to take a stand against Governor Brian Sandoval's proposed higher education cuts. In Florida, demonstrators protested on Tuesday against Governor Rick Scott's budget plan that calls for cutting $4.6 billion in state spending, phasing out corporate income taxes, and eliminating well over 8,000 jobs from state agencies. In Cairo, hundreds of Egyptians stormed the headquarters of the nation's secret police, seizing mounds of secret documents and evidence of torture. McClatchy Newspapers reports some former prisoners sobbed as they saw their old cells recalling electric shocks and severe beatings. Families held passport photos of missing relatives and were just desperate to explore the dank chambers of the state security building for clues to their fates. Activists say documents found inside the building contain evidence of phone tapping, election rigging and torture. Protesters searched the building looking for political prisoners. The U.S. military is coming under increasing criticism over its treatment of U.S. Army whistleblower Private Bradley Manning, who has been held in solitary confinement in a Marine brig since June. Manning's lawyer says his client is now being stripped of all his clothes every night and forced to remain naked for seven hours. Democratic Representative Dennis Kucinich of Ohio has compared the treatment of Manning to what happened inside Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. President Barack Obama has given the green light for military trials to resume at Guantanamo Bay and laid down the rules for holding some of the detainees inside the camp indefinitely. 
In the wake of a long Pentagon review on how the tribunals should be conducted, Defense Secretary Robert Gates will now be expected to lift a ban on new trials at Guantanamo that has been in place since early 2009 when Mr. Obama came to office promising to shut the infamous facility within 12 months. Foreign countries have shown themselves loath to take any of the camp's terror suspects off the Americans' hands, and the U.S. Congress has blocked attempts at every turn either to house some of them on U.S. soil or bring them to trial in U.S. courthouses. According to Cuban state-run television, Alberto Granado, whose 1952 journey across South America with Ernesto Che Guevara was recounted a half-century later in the film The Motorcycle Diaries, died on March 5th in Cuba. He was 88 years old. Those were the alert headlines for the week of March 10th, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of March 10th, 2011. Israeli Apartheid Week continues this week in cities across Canada. Israeli Apartheid Week is a global demonstration that analyzes the state of Israel as an apartheid system through lectures, protests, films, exhibitions, music, visual art, and forums. For more information on these events, go to apartheidweek.org or canadiandimension.com and click on events. A public forum on March 11th will examine the Canada-Honduras Free Trade Agreement and Canada's complicity in undermining human and civil rights through a commitment to free trade. Guest speakers include Bertha Olivan, a Honduran human rights defender, and Pedro Landa, coordinator of the Honduran Centre for the Promotion of Community Development. The forum will be held at Bayet Zatoun in Toronto and begins at 7 o'clock p.m. The International Day Against Police Brutality is March 15th. In the lead-up to the day, Winnipeg Cop Watch is hosting a panel discussion on policing in Winnipeg on March 12th. The panelists include Winnipeg Cop Watch member Macho Filipovich, Leslie Spillett, Executive Director of Kani Kanichik, and Urban and Inner City Studies Professor Jim Silver. The discussion begins at 2 o'clock p.m. in Eckhart Gramate Hall at the University of Winnipeg. And that's all for Around the Left for the week of March 10th, 2011. There's a widespread consensus that the world is facing another food crisis. The only question is what is causing it and what to do about it. Alert has invited Robert Polin to discuss these questions with us. Robert Polin is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and founding co-director of its Political Economy Research Institute. Thanks for joining us, Robert Polin. I'm very happy to be on. Thanks for having me. Now, can you maybe compare the current food crisis with the uh, one that we saw in 2008 that led to food prices, food riots in uh, a few dozen countries? Well, it's more or less of the same order. Uh, what we've seen in the last six months is uh, some of the key food prices, for example, wheat prices, uh, have doubled uh, between uh, uh, January and uh, in the second half of, of 2010, between June and December. Uh, same thing with sugar. Same thing with uh, edible oils like soybean and palm oil. So 
uh, it's not across the board. I mean, there are some that are more stable. Uh, rice is more stable. Um, but uh, we're also starting to see pressure there. In any case, uh, overall, the food price index uh, increase over the last six months of 2010 was uh, more or less of the same order as the uh, 2008. And uh, we're seeing the uh, food prices have uh, surpassed the peak reached in 2008. What, what do you see as the, the contributing factors to it? A shortage of food? Um, like well, there are factors such as uh, reductions in supply due to weather, due to uh, 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 Russian crop being down, and that's down modestly. Uh, there are other factors such as um, the um, demand uh, rising for biofuels, uh, so, and, those, and, and also uh, oil prices feeding into um, food prices. So those things are happening. But the, the crucial point here is that all of those things are influencing food prices, uh, you know, 3%, 4%, one direction or another. They cannot explain these massive swings where, for example, the price of wheat doubles. I mean, we have nothing uh, at all in the market in terms of supply for uh, demand for biofuels or uh, Russian wheat crop. Any of those things are large enough to cause the magnitude of the swings. The magnitude of the swing, therefore, has to be caused by something else. And we have another explanation, and that is the massive increase in speculative intervention into the commodity markets, in particular in the food market, that the food markets have become uh, another venue for Wall Street gambling, and that's what causes these massive swings, and in particular these massive increases. Could you maybe explain that a little bit more? Exactly what uh, do we, what, what, who are the speculators, and, and how does that whole uh, issue of speculation, how, how does it work in terms of uh, of boosting these price prices yeah. the way they well, do? Well, okay, so um, there's always been... Uh, Speculation on commodity markets, uh, and there's or there's always been a futures market. So, and the futures market basically just in principle says that if you're a farmer and you're planting your crop and your crop isn't going to be ready for six months to sell, you don't want to have to worry about what the price is going to be in six months, and you're willing to uh, uh, take insurance essentially and say, okay, I will sell my crop in six months at uh, a fixed price. So there's always been that market. Now, what has changed over the last decade, and in particular the last three or four years, has been that uh, uh, as an overlay on that existing market for the future purchases, futures contracts, is that you have um, Wall Street, big Wall Street firms such as Goldman Sachs. Um, moving into the commodities market, into the food market, into the oil market, and treating it like they treat stocks, bonds, derivatives, real estate, as something, uh, as a venue for investment, and in particular as a venue for investment where it's possible to get prices to move up very quickly. And if prices move up very quickly, of course, the speculators benefit hugely. And so that's really been the, the huge institutional change. And what allowed for that institutional change was the deregulation 
of these markets. Mm. Well, uh, if you're talking about, uh, so it sounds like basically you're saying that these uh, these speculators, um, they in order to to get these prices, uh, they they're just gambling that the prices will go up in the future, so that they buy while they're reasonably stable. Yeah, and it's not you know it's not total gambling. It's just like you know on, on, in Las Vegas, the house always wins. Because the house is able to dominate the uh, trading, and if you are a big enough player in the speculative market, you your gambling is mitigated by the fact that you uh, can take massive positions. And when you take massive positions, you can control the uh, movements of price. So if you take a massive position to push the price up. That will push the price up, and you'll be you'll be ahead of the market in pushing the price up. Okay, could you maybe just expand on that? How exactly is this? Are, are we going from that to that increase in the price of food? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say uh, we're talking about the price of wheat. Um, so uh, you know there are people that want to buy wheat because they want to buy wheat. Uh, that would include um, say wheat uh, processors. And it would also include uh, traditional, um, what we would call commercial uh, speculators, or, or we could even just think of them as insurance companies that say, okay, I'll, I'll be on the other side of the trade with a farmer, and if the farmer, is, uh, farmer wants a fixed price, I will bear that risk with the farmer, and I'll, I will purchase in six months at a fixed price what the farmer wants. Okay. So, and that's what was the, the kind of long-term traditional relationship. Now, on top of that, let's say you have Goldman Sachs come in and say, okay, we now say, let's say the market for th- this wheat is $1 million. Now, we're going to bring uh, $10 million into trading on this market. And so by trading $10 million, uh, we can essentially buy up futures contracts for the next X number of years and have... a a major influence on the price movements beyond whatever happens with weather, whatever happens with biofuels. And that is what's going on now, that the uh, very big Wall Street investment firms are using this market as another venue, just like the stock market, as a way to um, move in and control the behavior of price and benefit. Okay, so in terms of... uh you know, controlling uh, behavior. Is this something that can be re- regulated, and is that going to yeah. resolve any long-term problems? Uh, yes. I mean, the, um, the reason that we didn't have this kind of wild price swings uh, for a generation prior to uh, the last several years is that we did have regulations. And I don't want to say that the regulations were perfect, but we had reasonably good regulations in, in the U.S., where uh, a lot of the trading takes place at the Chicago Mercantile Trade uh, Association, you had regulations that, for example, uh, set what we call position limits, so that a position limit says no trader can uh, hold more than a given percentage of the market. So if you you can you can uh, Goldman Sachs or its clients can move in and and participate in the market, but according to the regulation. Uh, they're not allowed to maintain a dominant position. That's one thing. Uh, other uh, regulations which worked reasonably well was that the uh, trading had to take place on exchanges 
and when they take place on exchanges as opposed to unregulated over-the-counter markets, um, you had things like uh, margin requirements. A margin requirement says that a trader has to put down a given amount of cash, uh, and they can't just borrow everything in order to trade. So that increases the risk for the trader, and therefore that dampens their uh their willingness to undertake a speculative strategy. So we did have regulations, and, you know, the food prices were fairly stable for a generation, and, in fact, they were actually going down, uh, nowhere near the extent they've gone up recently, but they were trending downward, and that was regarded as a concern up through the 1990s uh, because poor farmers were getting hurt by the downward trend. Now we have these massive swings. Which, by the way, doesn't even help the farmers. Those farmers like high prices, but when you have these massive swings, they can't plan for the future. Robert, and, talking and about fact, the, the benefits are getting captured by the middle people. Mm. Talking about planning for the future, uh, could, are you very confident then that uh, new regulations uh, will be effective in the long over the long term and in, in mitigating uh, yeah. more of these um, crises? Well, I think that's a, a big uh, struggle right now. I mean. What happened in the U.S. Congress last summer was that, uh, you know, they passed this massive financial regulation law called Dodd-Frank, which is, you know, aimed to address a lot of issues, not just this one. Um, but in the course of this uh, law getting passed, actually the regulations around the commodities future market were fairly strong. They were surprisingly strong, and I think that part of the reason was actually some of the Congress people actually heard pressure from people that care about food prices going too high and creating uh, malnutrition and hunger throughout the world. So we did have reasonably good regulations that were passed. The big problem, though, is that they were couched in very general terms, and the details were left to the regulatory bodies themselves, uh, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission in particular. And that is what... Um, we're fighting over now is what's going to happen at the Commodities Futures Trading Commission in terms of establishing the details of the regulatory uh, system. Okay, so your uh, long-term prediction then? Long-term prediction, uh, a fair assessment is I think it's up in the air, but I think that people that care about this can actually influence the outcome if they focus on it, if they pay attention. Uh, there is a global movement around this, and uh, people have had some impact, um, certainly in influencing the debate. The outcome remains to be seen. Well, of Robert Pollan, I would like to thank you for uh, participating in this interview, and uh, hopefully we can hear from you again soon. I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Robert. Bye. And that was uh, Robert Pollan speaking to us from Boston on the food crisis. We are all following the situation in Madison, Wisconsin, where the state governor has launched a frontal attack against public sector unions in that state. We have discussed the Wisconsin situation in an earlier broadcast, but here we mainly want to discuss whether Wisconsin can happen in Canada. To help us with that question, we have contacted Canadian Dimensions labor columnist Herman Rosenfeld. 
Herman worked on the line as a union representative at GM and retired as a national rep in the education department at the Canadian Auto Workers Union. So welcome to Alert, Herman. My pleasure. Now, can you maybe just uh, explain uh, a little bit about uh, how exactly uh, this Governor Walker is succeeding in uh, cracking down on the, the union movement there? Well, um, uh, Governor Walker, actually, he's, he's a number of, there are a number of uh, governors, uh, Republican governors, <coughs> extremely right-wing Republican governors that have been elected in 2010, at the same time that the, legislate, the, the legislatures were taken over by conservatives as well. Uh, um, and what he has done is, uh, first, one of the first things he did was to give tax breaks to, uh, to corporate friends and, uh, um, and put the, uh, the, the, the finances of the, uh, of the state, uh, you know, in, my, in a mild problem. Uh, and uh, as, an, as an excuse, he, he basically frontally assaulted union, uh, public sector unions. What did they do? They, um, he, in a budget, uh, <coughs> in a budget, uh, um, Adjustment. That's something of that of that of that order. It included things like taking away the right to uh, collectively uh, collectively bargain anything but uh, wages, uh, wages over any wages over the um, um, cost of living would have to be, um, uh, sub, you know, they would have to have a state referendum. Um, they every year they would have to um, recertify. Um, they would have to pay. In the, in the short run, they would have to pay uh, a lot more for pensions and, uh, and health care benefits. But basically, they would cut their capacity to exist as an organization. Could you talk a little bit about the fight back? How successful is that? Uh... Actually, I think it's the most dramatic fight back among the labor movement in the United States in decades. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember, I mean, not personally, maybe, but uh, reading about when Ronald Reagan was in power, one of the first things he did was in the 1980s was he he decertified this uh, air traffic controllers union uh, and he showed them on TV with uh, with with you know ball and chains, you know, like manacles, <clears throat> as as a method of of, of showing he's going to break the trade union. There was no resistance. Uh, this has tens of hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. There was over 107,000, 170,000 people demonstrating over the days. They, there was a combination of <clears throat> of strikes. Teachers went on strike for four some odd days. The teaching assistants at the Madison went out. You had people from all over the U.S. going there. And uh, it is one of the most uh, engaging moments that we've seen any time mm-hmm. in the United States. So it is a mass. It is a massive. And the effect. One of the political effects of what they've done is they've pushed the Democrats. Who are always ambivalent about how to handle us, at least in Wisconsin, to uh, to actually uh, at least in the state senate. Uh, well, to with to those leave the state, with those uh, factors, does that mean that they're going to win? It's hard to know. I I, <clears throat> I guess a complete victory would would mean getting uh, Governor Walker to withdraw the bill, and uh, um, the bill also contains demands for concession, and there are elements of. Of being able to to outsource things and also to punish people on social assistance cuts to services, I'm not sure whether they're going to actually gain that. Right now, it seems like most of the forces are involved in the leading in leading this thing are arguing to to get rid of the worst elements of it, the attacks on collective bargaining rights and the existence of the union, and perhaps con, uh, con, uh, continuing with the concessions. But the the the, the, um, the governor said he's going to continue with this. U.S. U.S. Uh, states, there's two houses 
you know, like a like a Canadian Parliament. There's a Senate and it's in a uh, in a uh, assembly, and in, in the assembly the, it was passed, but the Senate is has not passed because they need the Democrats. It's it's over with more Dem- Republicans than Democrats, but they need the Democrats for a quorum, and all of the Democratic. Uh, State senators are out of the out of the state. That brings us back to Canada. We have uh, right wing governments uh, federally and across the country, and uh, uh, you know, likewise, uh, there's uh, concerns about uh, how you know, the uh, I guess the left, the, the equivalent of the Democrats, uh, might be even if they were so inclined, could uh, stand up for uh, you know for uh, labor for working people. Uh, do you see, first of all, that uh, labor being under assault, at least to, to anywhere close to the same degree as in the United States? Right now, no. Um, but, I mean, strategically, yes. Tactically, no. In the sense that what you find in, in, in the United States happening now uh, is that this is almost seen as the last act of the defeat of the trade union movement. Because the private sector is down to 7%, the entire labor movement um, you know, is, is around 12%, and uh, the public sector is around 36%. In Canada, the percentage are much higher. Similar kind of vector, similar kind of direction. But they haven't completely destroyed the private sector the way they've destroyed it there. And in a number of states all throughout the American South, um, the, the, the public sector uh, has been defeated as well. So they're not quite there in Canada yet. Um, even the, uh, um, you know, the, fed, the feds and the... Uh, I just heard a debate on, on, on the radio that with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation saying they're not willing to actually do the kind of things they're doing in the U.S. But that doesn't mean that they're not moving in that direction. We never predicted in Ontario, for example, the coming of Harris. And when Harris came, he, he, did, a, he, he did a very strong job. He didn't quite go as far. But there's no reason to think that the, the right wouldn't eventually try and move in that direction, which means to prevent this, we have to mobilize against the kind of the unions because you just talked about friends of labor. Well, the Democrats are not really the friends of labor in the United States. The Democrats have made this possible in all kinds of ways. Even mm-hmm. Obama has been very ambivalent about support, really supporting this thing. So, um, what? but it, it really has to do with mobile. There is no working class rep- political representation in either candidate of the United States. You know, we, we we've used the new Democrats mm-hmm. to the best of our possibilities, but it really can't say that they. They have a class perspective, or that they're opposing what? Uh, neoliberal policies. Herman, what elements would have to be put in place first before such uh, uh, that last final blow, like you're seeing in the United States, could manifest itself? Like, what what should we be looking for? Well, you, 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 I guess you know. Sometimes you have to take them at their word. You have to be looking for uh, governments that actually say they're going to do those things. Hmm. Um, parties in, in in opposition that are going to do those things. And uh, certainly the forces behind the Rob Ford people in, in Ontario and, uh, and the Ralph Kleins in, uh, you know, in, in Alberta and uh, uh, the Tim Hudaks was the opposition, the conservative opposition leader in Ontario, go in that direction, but they're not quite there. But, you know, you never know if, if the cons- federal conservatives get a majority and they continue to push this austerity agenda, because all of the driving this whole thing is is the to get out of the crisis they spent all these resources on uh, on uh, you know keep, keeping the banks going and keeping certain industries happening and they 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 they've used that as a way as a wedge to try and uh, push the neoliberal agenda a lot further an example is what happened to the auto workers which I'm more familiar with during as a condition of the bailout of the industry they pushed dramatically and destroyed basically that un 
the Union, certainly in the United States. Um, it could happen here. I mean, the United States, the background to this also is that each state is, is, is really financially strapped. They need to get money from the federal government. And unless they do, they, uh, they, they, then it pushes them, even the progressive forces, to, to actually try and deal with uh, um, uh, uh, terrible financial problems for, for the governments. And that can only be dealt with by raising political demands to raise taxes, um, dramatically raise taxes on the wealthy. So if you see governments with new, and, and the conservatives could do this, you know, because they say this is their strategy to make Canada the lowest, uh, lowest uh, tax, taxable venue in the world, in, in the developed capitalist world, that if you see them talking about a dramatic new offensive on uh, tax cuts, this would have to be uh, c- covered with dramatic uh, ending uh, attacks on public sector spending and uh, on public, spec- public sector unionization. So it could happen. But you have to hear this. I think it has a lot to do with how much we, I mean, let me step back. The real question is, is that how we win the battle for the public opinion. And by public opinion, I mean the opinion of private sector workers and the working class in general. Because it's a very right-wing populist ideology and ideas appeal to people's notion that, well, some people are doing better than I. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've lost X, so I can't allow someone else to have it. And also a belief that the only way you can have job creation is, is to create these kinds of wonderful environments for Herman, private capitalists you, to come. you mentioned Rob Ford earlier. Uh, yeah. Do you see this, uh, th- that uh, at the municipal level, that that might be uh, where we might have to watch because that's sort of at the end of the line when it comes to, uh, when you go from re- government revenue, it, it's really the, the municipal level is where the rubber hits the road. Well, the municipal level in Canada is is, is usually the place where the cuts are, the, are, are cuts are pretty awful, because uh, the um, they only, only usually deal with uh, uh, things that uh, you know that that are hard to fund, and uh, certainly in, in in Ontario, it means a lot of the municipal a lot of what the there was this downloading that was done to so the municipality, and the municipality can't afford to pay for that, so um, at least in Ontario, I can see that starting to happen here. But an alternative way to look at that is that um, that it, they prevented a lot of this from happening when Harris when was in power, when the more conservative elements were in power in the province, and now they've broken through that. And the way they break through that is by appealing to this this right wing populist uh, ideas among ordinary working people, mm-hmm. and that's really where we have to win this battle. Two years ago, there were a number of uh, there was a, a garbage strike. And there was also municipal workers strike. Both outside and inside workers were on municipal workers were on strike in Toronto, and the unions did a terrible job of of, of winning over work uh, the, the population as as the auto workers did before them. Um, the real question is how have they learned to do this? And certainly, we've been talking to some of the, peop- the people in in the outside workers uh, union, and uh, they have learned a lot. And hopefully, the, they'll take this on. But you need a political explanation. It's a left political explanation, and since there are no left political parties, at least not uh, in, in, in existing in the Canada and the United States, it makes it quite difficult, which is why we have to start building those kinds of... Herman, it's uh, been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, we appreciate your views and, and perspectives on this subject, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you again on Alert. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, that was uh, Herman Rosenfeld. Uh, He worked on the line as a union representative at GM and retired as a national rep in the education department at the Canadian Auto Workers Union.
The new March-April issue of Canadian Dimension features an article about the proposed Enbridge pipeline that would carry tar sand oil from Alberta across northern BC to a port in Kitimat, where it would be transferred onto supertankers and shipped to China. The pipeline is hotly disputed by the 31st Nations whose territories the pipelines would cross. One of their leading spokesmen is Togestai, hereditary chief of fireweed clan of the Wet'suwet'en nation. Togestai is prominently featured in the CD article. Alert caught up with him at his home in northern BC. Welcome to Alert Togestai. Thank you. So maybe just explain why is it that you oppose this project? The project proposes to run um, a three-foot diameter dual pipeline. Uh, another uh, pipeline would be condensate that they would be bringing back into Alberta. But they, they, they propose to run this oil pipeline from northern Alberta to Kitimat, and uh, the area that they propose to run it through goes right through our traditional territories. One of the biggest reasons why we're really opposed to this is because the pipeline route that they chose actually travels through about 45 kilometers of spawning, pristine spawning channels for salmon that we depend on here in our community. Hmm. Okay, so are, are there any other damages that uh, you could see sp spent spawning from this project? No pun intended. Well, the... The oil pipeline rupture that Enbridge had in Michigan last year, Missoula, the Missoula River spill, um, really spells it out for us. You know, there's, there's, there's real genuine concerns. They're not fabricated. They're not exaggerated. These are real genuine concerns that Enbridge has been trying to downplay since the spill happened in Missoula. And they've been trying to push this, this project through our territories without properly consulting us. The, the Canadian government, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency, as well as the National Energy Board, are both um, assuming that they have jurisdiction here in our territories. Uh, we've never signed any treaties with anybody. We've never surrendered our our decision-making powers to anybody. And the, the government and the agencies that work for the government assume that um, they, they have full power and authority to make decisions on territories that are unseated. Hmm. <clears throat> now, uh, is Enbridge um, offering anything to you to uh, to try to make it more acceptable? Are they? Uh, is there anything they could offer that uh, maybe like doing something that would satisfy you that uh, that damage won't happen? We made a suggestion as the Tsutan people for them to change the route that they had. One of the suggestions that we had was to alter the route south of to the southern part of our traditional territories to follow the Uta Lake um, man-made water project. It was uh, created by the Commander Project, a hydroelectric project that uh, has dammed um, one of our largest rivers here. And um, they, they actually drilled a tunnel from the end of the Uta Lake project into Kitimat to the hydro facility they have there. And uh, they, we know that the federal government, or the, yeah, I think it was the federal government and the provincial government, actually funded um, um, the Alcan Aluminum Company and eventually the Camano um, to, to drill a hole through one of the mountains. And a large part of that hole was actually drilled 
but it was abandoned for some unknown reason. They were supposed to do some type of expansion project and do uh, add some additional turbines in there, but uh, for some reason it was stopped. And we know that the, this this hole that was drilled through the mountain would make a lot more sense, mostly because the large man-made lake has already destroyed a large part of the ecosystems in that area. Um, the Enbridge Company, like we, we told them about this, the National Energy Board, the Canadian Environment, Environmental Assessment Agency, they were all told of um, the, the alternative route that our people were proposing, and they decided to completely ignore it and continue on with trying to push this this pipeline through the Maurice watershed. So our people, you know, said, no, we can't allow you to do that. There's fish that our people depend on. We, we continue to depend on the salmon that are there. Salmon runs have been hit hard over the last 20, 20 or 30 years now uh, due to a lot of the um, fishing that happens on the West Coast. And the salmon runs have been hit really hard, and our people have suffered as a result of that. Now, there are some salmon and some trout species that our people um, have limits on, on the amount that we can harvest. And um, this stuff is all out of our control. You know, a lot of the mismanagement that happened with the fisheries came as a direct result of decisions that came from the Canadian government, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And now we're faced with another agency, the National Energy Board, and a Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency, both who um, have a record of um, rubber stamping industry. You know, there's only one case that I know of in the last, um, since, since, since the, NEE, the National Energy Board became into or existence, that um, was actually turned down, and it was a small project in eastern Canada. So we know that they're going to attempt to rubber stamp this project through. And our people are adamant that it's just not going to happen. So are there any uh, uh, First Nations on board? Enbridge is claiming that there are some. Uh, is that true? There are small pockets of bands that have signed agreements with Enbridge. But, um, you know, we have a hereditary system here. We're not um, in, in any way connected to the Indian Act or the... Uh, the in Indian and Northern Affairs Canada um, affiliation. You know, we're not we're not a band going into this whole thing. Our people are hereditary. We've had these territories since the beginning of time. You know, they're not trap lines. These are actual traditional territories that people have fought for and protected for thousands of years. And um, we look after these territories. Uh, bands typically look after jurisdictions that are within the Indian reservation boundaries that they have. Well, to um, guess. Trying to step out of that and say mm -hmm. they have more jurisdiction is breaking traditional law. So, Togestai, I mean, in in practical terms, what can you do? I mean, even if if you're if you're correct and this is your uh, your territory, what can you do to uh, resist what Enbridge is trying to do? And and what allies are helping you in that struggle? We can assert our traditional authority. You know, we have traditional jurisdiction and authority that we've never surrendered to anybody. Mm -hmm. um, our people have sat quietly and aside hoping that negotiations are going to be the answer for us. And that didn't happen in 2008, in October, or actually October of 2009. Um, our people unanimously got up and said, we are leaving the treaty process. We're abandoning and, abandoning and opting out of the BC treaty process because it wasn't doing anything except creating debt for us and problems. So as a result of that, our people decided that we're going to begin asserting our authority. We have an assertion strategy that we're putting in place is where we have to approach industry and government and tell them that in order for them to do any business, they're going to have to sit down and begin talking with us because that mm -hmm. hasn't happened yet. 
Well, there's a, a long history of, of governments uh, defying uh, the uh, indigenous peoples. Uh, how? What exactly do, does it mean in, in practical terms? I mean, when governments can just ignore First Nations peoples. I mean, in terms, you talk about exercising your your authority. I'm just wondering how, if you could elaborate on that. What what exactly would you do? Well, in order for anybody, like in, in, in the old days, our people had trespass laws. If anybody trespassed into any of our territories, the, the trespass laws were enacted. Um, for example, if somebody from a different nation decided to come in and begin using one of our territories and taking resources off the territories, they were usually given one warning. That warning was in a form of a feather. Um, they weren't received any more warnings after that. You know, we, didn't, we didn't present them with any more warnings. That was the only warning they had. That was a law of the land. All of our neighbors understood that law, and as a result, um, there are very rare cases of anybody breaking it. And if they did, um, that story and the consequences of their trespass was passed down for generations as a lesson. So you're not talking about physically blocking it with your bodies. You're talking about applying the laws? Exactly. Okay. That's uh, very interesting. So you... um, Will you stop Enbridge then? We will. You will. We have. You have. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 they they're they're under the assumption that they still have a last kick of the can. But really, you know, the the project's dead. If our mm. people said no to it, then it's not gonna happen. That's fascinating. Well, uh Togesta, I wanna thank you very much for, for sharing uh, your thoughts and, and perspectives on this issue. We'll certainly see uh, how things developed in coming weeks, so uh one of them, uh, if I can just interject one more thing. Okay, sir. <coughs> the National Energy Board um, assumes that they can make a decision and uh, either grant a permit to um, Enbridge. When really the uh, National Energy Board, if you ask them, they came to this, the community of Smithers, and <coughs> there was a community member that actually asked them, where do you guys receive your revenue? Can you explain to us where how you guys receive your revenue? Is it through uh, taxes that people pay, or where does it come from? And the National Energy Board representative said, well, they, they, they didn't want to answer for a while, but they eventually did. They eventually did. They said all the revenues that they get through the National Energy Board come from industry. Mm. And to us, you know, that just means that they're not really working for the government, they're not really working for the people, they're working for industry. Fascinating. Thank you to Togestai for joining us on Alert. Thank you. And uh, that was Togestai. He is a uh, leading spokesman, uh, the hereditary chief of the Fireweed Clan of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And this week, including the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day, I thought I would pick some songs, of course, about women. And I start thinking about what kind of women who I really appreciated the most. And the bottom line is I appreciate the same kind of women as I appreciate with men. I like people who are stand-up people, people who are not afraid to stand up and fight for what is right. And these poor songs are all about this. So now, here are four songs, 
starting with Anthony singing Scabs. <laughs> job site Oh, they look almost human, but something about them ain't right They just cross right over a picket line Pay no attention to a picket sign They're called scabs Scabs The lowest life form spawned in nature's lab They got no brain they got no heart Scabs are tearing our communities apart They might be reptilian The blood flows like ice in their veins Or extraterrestrial recyclers That use shit for brains Now what does it mean to have the right to strike? When companies do anything they like Like using scabs Scabs The lowest form of life Found in nature's lab They got no brains They got no heart Scabs are tearing our communities apart Now before we had our unions Let me tell you, conditions were bad Understaffed, overworked Underpaid till we finally got mad. But then, when we walked out to protect our rights, they just gave away our jobs to those parasites, to those scabs. Scabs. The lowest form of life found in nature's lab. They got no brains, they got no heart. Scabs are tearing our communities apart I could puke watching co-workers Turned into weasels and traitors They must be pod people Hatched by those corporate raiders And insider traders You know our labor laws are crazy They're so damn two-faced They say I haven't been fired Just permanently replaced by scabs the lowest form of life found in nature's lab They got no brains, they got no heart Scabs are tearing our communities apart Oh, listen to your mama, this is an idle gab You're pretty damn low on the food chain When you think you gotta grab your striking neighbor's job I guess you gotta be a The bosses and the bosses don't like me. Join the NMU, join the NMU, join the NMU, oh, join the NMU. I was raised in old Kentucky, Kentucky born and bred. When I joined the NMU, well, they called me a Russian red. Join the NMU, oh, join the NMU. 
John and M.U. John and M.U. My husband asked the boss for a job and these is the words he said. Bill Jackson, I can't work you, sir, cause your wife's a Russian red. John and M.U. Oh, John and M.U. John and M.U. John and M.U. These is the worst times that I have ever saw. You get shot down by gun thugs, you get framed up by the law. John and M.U. Oh, John and M.U. John and M.U. John and M.U. Our bosses ride fine horses and we walk in the mud. Their banner is a dollar sign and ours is striped with blood. John and M.U. Oh, John and M.U. John and M.U. John and M.U. If you want to join a union as strong as it can be, join the dear old NMU and come along with me. Join the NMU, oh, join the NMU. Join the NMU right now, join the NMU. In labor's glorious history was many a union made Who stood up to the bosses so staunch and unafraid Molly Jackson, Mother Jones fought for a better way But let's sing of Fanny Sellens and remember her today All over Pennsylvania Fanny spread the union word Coalfields and the company towns, her voice of hope was heard. United we will bargain, but divided we must beg. Fanny sell and spread the dreams of the UMWA. A widow with four children, toiling 80 hours a week, found time to fight injustice and bring power to the meek. She fought with tireless energy, no duty would she shirk. Though murderers got short her life, we carry on her work. In the company slums of Ducktown in the summer of 19, an unarmed striking miner was gunned down by deputies. When Fanny cried out, spare his life, they shot her down as well. And hundreds watched in horror as this fearless woman fell. Now the ones who gave the orders faced no charge of any sort. And the men who pulled the triggers were acquitted by the court. But when companies own the courthouse, justice fails for you and me. So let's work like Fanny Sellens now for true equality. children toiling 80 hours a week, found time to fight injustice and bring power to the meek. She fought with tireless energy, no duty would she shirk. Though murderers cut short her life, we carry on her work. 
that sort of life we carry on her work. That's it for this week, folks. See you soon. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also broadcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbanuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. <laughs>